from her mispronunciation. Uh, mis- misappropriation. No, that's mis- not the yeah. word. No. Misappropriation of pronouns. No. Yes, no. I think that's uh, that's the term. It's Friday, February the 23rd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and SEAL supporter, and with me today is, as ever, is Paul Peters, civil engineer and serial series watcher. Yes, I think uh, we should start with my job title because we we need to get this over with. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, Because there was a rumour... Yeah. yeah, very painful. A rumor in the media emerged uh, this week that um, I think it's this video land as well. One of the Dutch streaming services is uh, considering to make a miniseries on uh, the life of Quincy Promes, the uh, Dutch footballer who was convicted of not only stabbing his nephew, but also um, smuggling. Uh, what was it, 15,000 15, kilos of cocaine? No, 1,350 kilos okay. of cocaine through Antwerp. Yeah. Yeah. So with with an accomplice. So I guess technically yeah. he's only responsible for what half of that. Um, so uh, yeah, only a very small amount of cocaine. Yes. Um, in the meantime, while he was uh, yeah prosecuted, he fled to uh, or, or, or he was actually transferred to. He signed a contract with Moscow, I believe. He moved in a hurry to Spartak Moscow. Yeah, after he was yeah. charged with the stabbing his nephew. Yeah. And the stabbing yeah, case exactly. only came to light because the police were already uh, bugging his phones um, while they're investigating the drugs case. Yeah, so yeah. Um, a suitable topic to make a, a miniseries about Absolutely. and to give him even more attention. So uh, that is something uh, we are looking forward to. Um, yeah. In the meantime, there is another series that is uh, just uh, emerged on uh, Videoland, which I also would not recommend watching, and that is a series about the life of Patty Bracht, one of those uh, media personalities in the Netherlands. That uh, yeah, you you actually wonder why why on earth is she famous? But You're she kind turned of famous out to be being famous. Yeah, yeah but she yeah. turned out to be a, a the lead singer of a uh, girl band called Luf. Have you ever heard of that? Luf. Are they related to Bluff? <laughs> no, 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 not at all, <laughs> not at all. Um, Luf, yeah, look it up on YouTube. I uh, perhaps you you know the songs. Uh, so that is when she uh, initially started to become famous, and um, yeah, she's now in her late sixties, I believe, and uh, she uh, has had a um, yeah tumultuous career in 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 the Dutch media and in the Dutch uh, um, yeah Hollywood uh, realm. Um, and now they made a series on of her, but it was, I I, I put it on, but um, yeah, I think I I managed to uh, to uh, keep watching for thirty minutes or something because uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty awful. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so that was my week. Uh, your, Gordon, your week's <laughs> entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you spent your week much better than I did, I think. Right. Uh, I had better viewing, I think. To be fair, yeah. I was uh, I had a better outlook. Um, I went off to the um, the island of Tessel. Uh, up in the, the Vaden Island, uh, the nearest to the Vaden Islands, uh, you can get a car ferry across from Den Helder. Um, and on the way, I was trying, I was looking out the window, trying to spot uh, the famous Den Helder seals. 
because yeah. uh, and, and cheer them on. There, there are two seals in Den Helder who've been causing an awful lot of uh, well ophef in uh, among the fishing community in Den Helder, because yeah. um, a, a seal swam in through the sluice from the sea a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a female seal. She was pregnant. Uh, she's since given birth to a cub, and the two of them ah. basically have been eating all the fish in the yeah. harbour in Den Helder and ruining it for the anglers. And the anglers are very upset <laughs> because they pay about four thousand euros, a, or, or they, 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 they catch fish to the value of about four thousand euros a year. But now all of a sudden uh, they're getting nothing they're, 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 yeah. their lines are coming up um, empty uh, because the seals are getting all to all the fish first so they're gobbling up all the fish these two greedy seals and uh, the anglers have uh, contacted the seal rescue centre at Peterburen which is further along mm-hmm. the coast uh, across from one of the other out of Baden Island and, uh, in uh, Groningen and uh, they said uh, can you just uh, come and take these seals away and they said no because we're a rescue sanctuary we <laughs> rescue six seals these ones obviously by going by their appetites are perfectly healthy so leave <laughs> yeah. them be there's nothing wrong with them <laughs> they're eating fish that's what they do <laughs> exactly that's, that's just their, that's their job as seals you know that's their livelihood so we're not I have an obvious that. solution here um, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the Royal Dutch Navy should just name one of their submarines uh, the seal the HNLMS seal yeah. and that will automatically attract the seal to that submarine and they will spend all their time just sunbathing on, on, on top of the on top of the uh, submarine. I think that is an obvious solution, right? Yeah. That's what they also did with uh, with the sea lion, or what was it? The walrus. You're referring the to, the, to the famous sea lion that uh, that, uh, that went swam all around the coast of uh, I think Sweden, uh, across to Scotland, yeah. and uh, dropped in on the Netherlands, and like you say, ended up uh, actually adopting one of the Dutch submarines for a time. Yeah, it was a walrus, and the, and walrus the Dutch walrus, submarines yes. are yeah. at a wal- of a walrus class. That's so right, that it's a walrus was... class submarine. Yeah. Yeah, so that was yeah. A, a delightful irony there. So I think that's an obvious solution, and uh, yeah, that will make uh, me happy because then we have something to watch on social media uh, that will make the, the the fishers happy of Den Helder, and I also also think the seals will enjoy uh, spending their time yeah. on submarines. And they can become Navy seals. So yeah, everyone, <laughs> everyone wins. They get a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a salary as well. So and then and all the fish they can eat, which is quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. If they keep uh, so yeah. could could end up bankrupting the Dutch Navy. Yeah. Well. Um, um, yeah. We will uh, talk about the um, NATO spending a bit more later yes. on the podcast. But yeah, the, the 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 Dutch armed forces they have had an enormous increase in their in their in their budget in the past years, right? In order to achieve this two percent goal of uh, of NATO, yeah. they don't know what to do with all the money they uh, they have now. So maybe this is uh, this is also a um, a good idea. It is a solution looking for a problem, isn't it? And I think we've just found the yeah. problem. Yeah. As it, while we're talking about things uh, sort of flip-flopping around and uh, <laughs> causing a big splash, um, uh, what is the OPEF of the week this week, uh, Paul? <laughs> yeah, the Tweede Kamer is in recess this week, and that doesn't mean OPEF cannot come from The Hague. The Binnenhof plunged into utter chaos and total confusion after someone noticed on Wednesday that uh, Parliament's official website used not one, not two, but three pronouns to refer to MPs. There is a page on the Tweede Kamer website that lists all 150 MPs, and, uh, and, and on the page, um, uh, yeah, short biographies of every member are included. Uh, but since this week, all parliamentarians' pronouns appear to be he, she, and them, mm. um, or in Dutch, hij, zij, hen. 
And until recently, the website used only a single pronoun, and naturally someone uh, immediately suspected that woke had infiltrated the Tweede Kamer. Um, one MP in particular, BBB leader Caroline van der Plas, was not amused. She tweeted, it's just she. I don't want this nonsense I haven't asked for on my personal Tweede Kamer page. I'm a woman. I decide how I want to be referred to. Ironically, that's the point of yes, the exactly. The, the, the people queued up on Twitter to say thank you for your support for the trans community, there, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> I did like uh, the reaction from SGP leader Christopher. He yeah. responded saying that um, he is in no doubt that he is a man, and that it's quite curious that after more than a century, the Tweede Kamer still does not know that the SGP faction leader is, by definition, a man. Yes. Um, yeah, so, although obviously the courts didn't know that very well because they've uh, had several court cases to try and um, prevent them having to uh, put women on their list of candidates. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, yeah, there appear to have been a bug on the Tweede Kamer website. Um, it usually uses a gender checkbox to generate automatic parts of the website that refers to specific MPs. But the page accidentally showed all three of the um, pronouns and all the genders uh, checked. And that mistake was fixed the same day. Van der Plas deleted her angry tweet saying that the problem has been solved, but she did not apologize for her unjustified accusations. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think the lesson here is that uh, MPs shouldn't go on recess because they end up having uh, too much <laughs> spare time on their hands. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This week, The Hague licks its wounds after the explosion of violence at an Eritrean festival at the weekend. Is Mark Rutte set for a defensive move to Brussels? We finally found out where former health minister Ernst Kaupers is off to, and the European Court of <laughs> Justice is asked to adjudicate on the Dutch inbuching exams. Plus we've got news of skating, cricket and football, and a veritable menagerie of animal stories, so stay tuned for that. The mayor of The Hague has admitted that the city was unprepared for the riots that erupted outside a cultural event organised by the Eritrean community on Saturday. The fighting started in the early evening when several hundred opponents of the Eritrean regime arrived to protest against the gathering. Stones and paving slabs were thrown, police cars and a coach were set on fire, 15 police officers were injured, uh, as well as several firefighters, and police used tear gas to drive back the rioters. Thirteen people were arrested, and on Wednesday it emerged a man had been arrested the day before the event after he posted a video online calling for people to turn up and disrupt it. City Mayor Jan van Zanen called the violence appalling and unacceptable. He said he'd been warned in advance that there was a risk of rioting and he stepped up security at the event, but the level of violence came as a surprise to the police and other authorities, and van Zanen said he would be examining whether crucial signs had been missed in the build-up to the event. So you say a coach was put on fire, was it a golden coach? No, no, it wasn't. No, it's just a standard uh, touring coach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It took me. Uh, it took me a minute to realize that it's a. Uh, it, it, it's a word for a bus as well, yeah, right? No, a not coach. a horse-drawn yeah. carriage. No. 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 Mm -hmm. Pretty horrific images coming from uh, from the Hague, especially this this bus was. Uh, yeah completely uh, burned down. Um, who has been blamed for the violence? Yeah, um, the mayor blamed a group called Brigade Nahamedu, which opposes Eritrea's government, and he said he'd been warned by representatives of the Eritrean community that they were likely to be out, in his words, looking for trouble. Clashes between the two sides have marred similar events in previous years in Reisweg, Amstelveen and Feldhoven. 
However, uh, academics and people who follow the Eritrean community said that uh, paramilitary groups linked to the Eritrean regime are also likely to, likely to have stoked the violence. Groups with names such as Eri Blood have been increasingly active in the Netherlands in recent years and organised an event in October to, quote, take revenge and be compensated for our disrupted festivals. So it's clearly mm-hmm. a pattern of violence and it's escalated over the last few years. And although yeah, police... Not, on, not only in the Netherlands, but also mm-hmm. in other parts of Europe as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Germany, in uh, in a town called Gießen, um, there was uh, a very uh, uh, severe violence last year at an event in July. And in Tel Aviv as well, in Israel, uh, 150 people were injured when uh, there was an Eritrean cultural event in September and uh, Israeli police fired live rounds into the crowd. And one officer told Tourette at the time the violence was worse than anything he'd seen outside the West Bank. Now, if it, when you're in Israel and you have the police saying this is yeah. some of the worst violence we've ever seen, you know it's pretty bad. Indeed. Um, and of course, that then brings us back around to the question of why the Hague authorities in the Hague didn't really seem to be prepared for the level of violence when there is clearly been a precedent um, on more than one occasion elsewhere. I have corona flashbacks here a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, obviously this has stirred a lot of uh, reactions also from Dutch politicians, I imagine. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, Geert Wilders was one of the first to step up and uh, he didn't mince his words. So he said the rioters should be rounded up and kicked out of the country. Other far-right commentators uh, swiftly took to social media to say there should be mass deportations. So, yeah, lots of unedifying stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And several MPs demanded an inquiry into the rioting, particularly into this organization brigade uh, Nahamadou and uh, said the organization uh, called for to see if uh, there was a way it could be banned and but there are also questions about what pro-government area trains were doing in the Netherlands in the yeah. first place uh, Caroline van der Plas there she is again said uh, why don't they go back if it's so good there um, and a slightly more measured response from Bente Becker of the Fefe Day who said it would be good for the cabinet to investigate uh, the organization but also we should not forget the influence of the Eritrean regime she said yeah, and um, um, there's been a lot of articles uh, popping up this week about what the background is of this uh, of this uh, yeah conflict and of these two opposing groups that um, yeah for some reason seem to be living in in the country. I mean, the the largest group of refugees, I believe, right, comes from Eritrea here in the Netherlands. Um, it is one of the biggest um, um, refugee communities, and I think actually the Netherlands yeah. has one of the biggest groups of Eritreans in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it seems indeed a bit odd that pro-government groups uh, also are uh, able to come to the Netherlands, um, especially if such a large group of uh, yeah people that oppose the government are fleeing the country. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit what the background here is, um, and and give us some more details? Yeah, it is a big, diverse um, community, and people have been fleeing from Eritrea for thirty years. The the first refugees came during the War of Independence with Ethiopia in the early 1990s, and they are now back the current regime that took power after independence. More recent refugees, of course, are people who are fleeing from that regime because it's one of the most repressive governments in the world. There have been reports of prisoners being tortured. There's no free media or independent media at all, and there's no political opposition. It's a one-party state, and there have been no elections since 1993. That was when the current president, Isaiah Safavirki, was chosen by the National Assembly with a vote share of 95%, so kind of Deza Zestach levels of support there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and Eritrea also keeps a very tight rein on its diaspora community, and that's attracted a lot of attention um, in uh, governments in Europe and in the Netherlands as well. Uh, there are 26,000 Eritreans altogether living in the Netherlands, which uh, out of a total diaspora population of half a million worldwide. Mm. Um, 
And there are also claims, or this is more speculative, that the government actually sends operatives uh, into European countries posing as asylum seekers so they can infiltrate the diaspora community. And uh, certainly um, uh, mm. one um, expert in Eritrea that I spoke to this week, um, Miriam van Rijsen, said that this was a very routine thing that uh, the Eritrean government um, uh, agents uh, were active in the community and constantly monitoring them. And that other Eritreans, particularly opposition, uh, people who oppose the government, uh, live in a state of kind of constant fear basically and the other thing they do is they impose a tax a two percent tax on all Eritreans are expected to pay this to the government back in Eritrea it's one of the things that bankrolls the government uh, their government and if they don't pay it then they don't get consular services so you can't get a passport mm. you can't get a birth certificate um, and yeah you, you basically have no um, yeah no support uh, from your government um, so the, extortion basically it's basically a form of extortion and this has come to light this, yeah. then the Dutch government and Dutch politicians are well aware of this in 2017 um, uh, the uh, documentary program Argos highlighted this 2% tax and that led to the Dutch parliament voting to shut down the embassy as a retaliatory measure mm. um, Steph Block as well the um, former foreign minister during the coronavirus pandemic um, he summoned the Eritrean ambassador because it turned out that they had sent letters out to everyone in uh, the Eritrean community telling them to give a 100 euro donation to the pandemic um, control uh, um, uh, strategy which it turns out the government then just swallowed up that money. It never actually got to the pandemic controls. And most young Eritreans flee the country because they have this very draconian military service regime, which is supposed to last 18 mm. months, but actually lasts about a decade. And if you don't go into the military, if you've um, got a bit of a reasonable education, then you're conscripted into what's called civil service, where you have to, you're have you forced to take a government job in the United Nations, like in teaching or in a government office, a civil service. And that's the United Nations say this is a form of forced labor. You're paid a Derives wage. Oh, yeah. You have no choice of whether or not to work. You know, you have no career prospects. Nothing. So a lot of people leave. For that reason, about four thousand people from Eritrea have claimed asylum in the Netherlands in the last two years. And the Netherlands also, as a final point, doesn't cooperate with Eritrea's government because of its terrible human rights record. And that means there's no kind of arrangements in place to deport Eritreans. So all these calls mm. for mass deportations or individual deportations, trial and deportation, uh, kind of fall flat because there's actually no, no mechanism for sending them back home. So a very difficult uh, uh, conflict and uh, yeah, very worrying that it is escalating on the, on the streets of, uh, of the Netherlands and uh, other parts of Europe as well. Yeah, but real questions I think to ask as well of, of Dutch cities and The Hague and, um, and, and places like it's also flared up in Rijswijk and Veldhoven in the past, whether what they should do um, to step up security. And uh, the mayor of Veldhoven banned the event in 2017 when there was rioting, but the, uh, the council of state um, um, uh, overruled him and said subsequently that uh, mm. he was wrong to ban the festival. So again, that's um, not a straightforward uh, option either. It has only been three months after the general election, so there's absolutely no rush in forming a new government. Everyone can take their time. It is an excellent time to uh, go on holiday, for example. Of course. Um, the Tweede Kamer is uh, on recess. I believe it's the spring recess. It's, it's spring recess. Called. Yeah, we're coinciding yeah. yeah, with the spring school holiday. So. Uh, if I take a look outside, uh, there is absolutely no sign whatsoever uh, of spring. Well, there is because um, uh, all the flowers are up because it's uh, although it's wet, it's also very mild. Yeah. Oh, I there's haven't seen a single flower there's yet. There's crocuses. There's no. 
Need to get out I, more. Uh, I will. Uh, I will need to get out more. Even so stop, the watching those, not... stop watching those Quincy Promise <laughs> TV series and actually go for a walk. <laughs> it's much better for your brain. Even though the the weather isn't too inviting to go outside, actually, I have to it's say it's more inviting than a mini series about Quincy Promise. Surely, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. You just see a lot of snow in those in, in those series. On so many ways, and you see so much snow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Um, the Tweede Kamer is enjoying a well-deserved week off, and the only person that uh, has somewhat been productive is Kim Putters, who was appointed as the new informateur last week, after the first attempt to form a coalition failed when NSA leader Pieter Omzicht dramatically stepped out of the talks. The new informateur spent his week talking to a yeah, true parade of political scientists, uh, constitutional scholars, long-standing populist politicians, and naturally, Herman Cenk Willink, because we cannot have a uh, successful formation process without the involvement of Herman Cenk Willink. Yeah. And presumably, uh, Johan Remkes uh, has switched, his office, switched off his mobile phone or thrown it in the sea. <laughs> I, I believe so as well, yes. Um Putters, in an effort to find out what exactly is meant by terms such as gedoogsteun, business cabinet or extra parliamentary cabinet. Those are all names of uh, forms of government that politicians keep using, but nobody seems to fully understand what they actually entail. Uh, the former Labour senator and chairman of the uh, Sociaal Economische Raad first wants to fully comprehend the different forms before actually inviting all 13 faction leaders to ask them what their preferred type of coalition is and determine which version has the best chance of succeeding. NRC reports that Putters has a special interest in the so-called Danish model. In Danish politics, it's quite common for a government to only enjoy a minority support in parliament, uh, which is then supplemented by a supporting opposition party, um, generally providing a, the required majority, but it is also often bypassed to find majorities with other opposition parties. Hmm. Um, do you know how long a typical Danish formation lasts? I imagine it's probably something around five years. 30 days, uh, 30 days is considered really? to be a long formation process yeah. so um, yeah we are already three times longer right and we're not even and we haven't really started uh, close, to be honest yeah. we haven't even started yeah, yeah. We, 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 we restarted yeah exactly we um, reset so yeah so a lot of uh, yeah, we, I'm a bit jealous of uh, of Denmark. Uh, I have to say. Indeed, yeah. Um, not only the nice pastries, but they've also uh, yeah got to have efficient government formation processes and a lot of and a lot of wind energy, I believe. Yeah. Um, so fueled by this uh, these private lectures uh, of the experts and the one-on-one -on -one meetings with the political leaders, the next step for Kim Putters is to advise the Tweede Kamer how he thinks the formation process should go forward. Um, I believe he was given four weeks to um, uh, f yeah report his findings to so Parliament. Too. Yeah. So four um, weeks, one yeah, of which is a holiday week. And another week for Caroline van der Plas to recover from uh, the uh, <laughs> from, from looking at the Parliament website. So uh, yeah, still he still has uh, roughly two and a half weeks to go um, until he has to uh, yeah uh, 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 report all his findings to the Tweede Kamer. So uh, uh, another thing to look forward to. Another thing to look forward to. Yes. So not much progress there, but we got some thrilling news because we solved a major castulp mystery. And I think you should start by explaining what a castulp is. A castulp is a is a, a glass covered which you put over your cheese. Yeah, and it is 
often used to uh, 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 it is often re- a term that refers to uh, the political the Hague the the the, yeah. the center the political center that, the nerve uh, yeah, center for- of the uh, of Dutch politics yeah yes this one square kilometer that forms uh, uh, yeah the, the the epicenter of Dutch politics okay. yes so that's one mystery solved um, but what was the actual cast of mystery <laughs> yeah, the mystery was, of course, uh, what is former health minister Ernst Kuipers going to do? Uh, remember, in uh, January, he uh, yeah, surprised everyone by uh, resigning out of the blue. Uh, and it turns out that he is uh, taking up a position at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And he's going to be the head of its research department, as well as a uh, extraordinary professorship, I believe uh, the term is. Um yeah, and it was a bit. It was very strange news uh, at the, at the start of January. Um, yeah, because he said he, he was just... having he was going to a job abroad, but he wouldn't tell anybody what it was. No, and then a bit and later was on, the... there was some sort of di- dispute about whether he'd actually got the job or not, whether he'd just uh, resigned on spec um, with a sort of vague promise of a job, but he hadn't actually secured it. Because it was taking so long, yes, yeah. and uh, um, uh, all the other people who, yeah potentially knew what he was going to do if he already had found a security job um, all denied that they had heard or even asked him what he was going to do which uh, sounded a bit implausible Mm. I mean uh, if you offer your resignation to your boss then yeah naturally your boss is going to ask what is what what is it that you're going to do Mm -hmm. next especially when you are leading like the 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 ministry that is taking up the 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 bulk of the uh, the government's budget uh, the biggest budget of any ministry yeah yeah, um, but nobody had asked him, so nobody could tell journalists uh, what 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 Ernst Kuipers was going to do. But finally, he uh, he announced uh, that he's going to Singapore. Um, and uh, back in January, he was already the fourth minister to uh, prematurely leave politics. Uh, the first one was, of course, uh, Wopke Hoekstra, who uh, took up the European Climate Commissioner job in Brussels. He was uh, soon followed by Finance Minister Sigrid Kaag. She left The Hague to become the head of the United Nations effort to rebuild Palestine. And, of course, uh, D66 Culture Minister Sunay Uslu. She returns to her family business, which, ironically, is a uh, holiday airline. <laughs> yes. uh, and as a D66 po- politician, she is she's supposedly very much opposed to these kind of businesses. Yeah. Do, do you um, think so, um, uh, the, the, the Ernst Kaupers' uh, delay was uh, due to the fact that he was trying to book a cheap flight uh, through uh, Gunai Hussle's <laughs> company <laughs> to, to Singapore? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he needed uh, the the cheapest option was six week or six weeks away. Yeah. Um, yeah. He what he says is that he was approached by the uh, university in Singapore to take up this job, and he said it was um, he did the right thing, and that was uh, resign and then start the uh, the job finding process. So uh, that's when he went to Singapore to be interviewed, um, and he said that yeah, if I did that while I was still health minister, then that wouldn't be. Um, yeah, uh, uh, sound, I guess. So is he really um, saying that he resigns as a minister without um, any yeah. guarantee that he would actually have another job afterwards? Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. right. Um, yeah, but we've lost the finance minister, we've lost the foreign minister, we've lost the health minister, but luckily the guy at the top of the tree, the <laughs> prime minister, Mark Rutter, he's not going anywhere, right? He's solid as a rock. He's uh, going to head the team until... Uh, the new government is sworn in in 2026. 
yes, unless that isn't before October. Um, because with every passing day, it seems more and more likely that Prime Minister Mark Rutte will succeed Jens Stoltenberg as the Secretary General of NATO. Uh, both uh, Reuters and Politico reported on Thursday that Rutte had secured support for his nomination from the US President Joe Biden and the British government. And the source told Reuters that uh, President Biden strongly endorses Rutte's candidacy, calling him a natural leader and communicator with a deep understanding of the importance of the alliance. His leadership would serve the alliance well at this crucial time, the source is quoted. The, the British government uh, gave him their backing, but did you see what happened with uh, the British government in the context of defence this week? Uh, yeah, they, they, um, they, 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 they test fired uh, one of their nuclear missiles and... It, off the um, coast of Brazil or something? Off the coast of Brazil, yeah. And it uh, yeah. flew back into the sea. It was a complete yeah. failure. Yeah. So. And what's the second test of this type of it was, missile? It was the second test of, one of, the, of these Trident missiles, yeah. And they've both failed. And they cost, I think, about yeah. 20 million euros per missile, missile 20 million pounds. So. Quite expensive, yes. I love that the uh, British spokesman uh, of the of the Royal Navy said, "If we would have actually launched a nuclear missile, then it would have gone off <laughs> as we wanted." Only this test, this dummy, this dummy uh, 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 missile uh, failed. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I don't know why he thought that, but uh, yeah, so, yeah, I thought. So, it was so I hope their I hope their support for Greta doesn't backfire in the same way as their <laughs> nuclear tests. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, The British uh, Foreign Office uh, issued a statement on Thursday. They said that uh, they strongly back Rutte's nomination. He is well respected across the alliance, has serious defense and security credentials. If you uh, ignore the fact that he uh, hasn't spent 2% uh, of the uh, Dutch GDP on on the armed forces in his 13 years as Mm. prime minister. But yeah, that's just a minor detail. and uh, he will ensure that the alliance remains strong and ready to defend and deter. Um, yeah, Rutte already enjoyed the support from President Emmanuel Macron of uh, France and the German Chancellor Olaf Schulz. Politico r- writes that uh, two-thirds of the 31 NATO member states are now backing Rutte to take over Stoltenberg in October. Last week it was reported that NATO wants to announce the next Secretary General by the end of the first quarter of 2024 to avoid being entangled uh, in the elections of the European Parliament and the presidential elections in the United States. Rutte has a pretty good relationship with Donald Trump, so in the event that Trump is re-elected in office, then uh, it is a good prospect that uh, at least he can go, uh, he can get along with uh, with the new uh, US President and uh, maybe um, iron out some of the harsh remarks uh, uh, Trump has made in the past uh, few weeks regarding the uh, NATO alliance. Um, If Rutte is appointed before a new coalition is formed, he will have to decide to carry on as a caretaker prime minister or step down to prepare for his new role. In that case, the VVD party will have to find someone else to take charge of the outgoing cabinet. And of course, there there are wild speculations on who that uh, should be. Hmm. Um, Dylan Yesogushi is the VVD leader now and she's the VVD leader in parliament as well 
and of course a, a cabinet member uh, the, she leads the justice ministry so yeah. she might be a, a logical uh, choice to take over the uh, prime ministership especially because that can prepare her but that, that gives her sort of a statesmanship aura right it kind so of gives her a foot in the door isn't it I mean she, she, she can go yeah. into the to, into the touring tour and just change the locks so that here builders can't get in um, <laughs> sort of that, uh, yeah. Um, yeah I can see that appealing yeah it gives her a bit of a head start I guess in the, yeah, in the ongoing discussion about who should be prime minister of the next cabinet uh, on the other hand yeah, you wonder whether it would be wise for uh, given that she's also uh, leading the Faith for Day party in these very tricky negotiations uh, yeah. you know, obviously Rutter did that when he was prime minister but uh, um, you know, it wasn't quite as uh, well, so I suppose his first cabinet actually is quite hard to put together it was a minority cabinet with real um, uh, support uh, but you know Yeshilgaz who's uh, quite untested she's been a minister only for about uh, three years I think and uh, she would be starting she'd be learning on the job as prime minister and trying to negotiate the next cabinet as well so you have to wonder whether that would be a good idea for her to take on both yeah. of those responsibilities at the same time um Gordon, what uh, did Rutte always say that he was going to do after he leaves uh, politics? He said he was just going to teach um, at the Johann de Witt College, um, and that was it. That was all he wanted to I do. I have to say, I have to say, I believed him. I thought when he said that, yeah, this is. I see him. He's already teaching, of course. So why not? Yeah. Uh, making it a full-time job. I I believed him, but yeah, he. Uh, I th- I think I think he might have been sincere about it to begin with, but then maybe he thought, and then, but then the NATO job came up, and I think you know you get an opportunity like that, you don't you don't turn it down in a hurry. He's, uh, yeah, I think Russ yeah his his ambition got the better of him. Uh, and uh, I always never thought that he was going to. Uh, yeah, uh, leave the prime ministership prematurely. Uh, but now come to think of it, just the fact that it is practically unprecedented, right? The only pre- uh, prime ministers that left office before their term ended was because they died. Um, <laughs> um, but the, the, just the fact that it is unprecedented makes it very appealing for Margaret to do it, I think. Of he, course, uh, yeah. He, he likes to have these sort of uh, uh, records and uh, uh, he, he, he likes to be uh, these these footnotes in in history I think exactly now he's got Rude Libbers' record in his back pocket as long as serving Prime Minister he feels like he can he can leave and then become like you say the first Prime Minister to leave in office I think politicians always like that you know they, they like to it's very yeah. rare usually you leave against you know at a time not of your choosing so you lose an election or there's a coup against you in your party or something so you know that kind of Tony Blair style um, uh, uh, choreographed exit is um, it is a very rare luxury for a politician Yes. The European Court of Justice has been asked to rule if the Netherlands broke the law by fining a refugee who failed to complete his integration course on time. The case has potential implications for people who are obliged to pass the inbuchering exams within three years of arriving. More than 3,400 people have been issued fines, with a maximum penalty of up to 1,250 euros. Then they're also supposed to repay the 10,000 euro loan that they get from the Dutch state to fund their tuition. The Council of State referred this case to the ECJ after the man argued that the financial penalties meant he was unable to access the same rights and protections as other long-term residents of the EU. 
who exactly brought the case? It was an uh, Eritrean refugee. Who ah, seemed to be in the news a lot this week. Um, it was an Eritrean refugee who arrived in the Netherlands at the age of 17 and was told when he became an adult that he would have to take his integration, integration exams within three years. He was fined 500 euros when he failed and told to pay back the 10,000 he'd received from the Duo, which is a student financing body. His lawyer, Afer Besum, argued that the cost was prohibitive and he was struggling with trauma and mental disabilities and said, Com- compare him with a Dutch child who has trouble at school, we wouldn't find them if they failed to pass their mm. exams. Um, and what are the possible consequences for Duo? Well, Duo has stopped issuing fines now until the judgment has been, been issued, but the outstanding bill amounts to 2.3 million euros, so potentially that's mm. a, quite a big loss of income for them, I guess. And uh, refugees have also taken out 27 million euros in loans altogether since the system was set up. They did change it in 2022, so there's no longer now this um, uh, system of loans, which is very, very questionable. Basically, you were given money by the government, you then had to get fines your own private tuition and all kinds of very shady operators mm. sprung up obviously because you know you're given people who know nothing about the system are given money that they have to spend on a service that they don't really understand and yeah it's just a, yeah. a magnet for sharks basically um, so the loans have been abolished but the potential fines for not participating in the imbuching system have now gone up to about uh, 4,000 euros Although that's not just for failing your exams, there's also things like if you don't turn up for your intake appointment uh, with the council. Anyway, the European Court is expected to take several months to publish its findings, and of course, in the meantime, Duo is not connecting any of these fines. So these uh, these these sharks, it is mo- almost as if uh, they put this uh, these sharks in an enclosed body of water full of fish, <laughs> and then now yeah, and the ECJ is now like a like a giant seal or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> If you're cramming for your inbirthing exams, uh, we hope this podcast gives you a little bit of a helping hand or at least some light relief. Uh, And if you do appreciate our efforts to keep you up to date on all the latest developments in the Netherlands, why not show your appreciation uh, with a small financial contribution, far less than €10,000, and become a member on Patreon. With the support of your generous donations, we'll strive to keep churning out these regular podcasts until a new Dutch government is sworn in or the country is reclaimed by the sea. Um, I have no idea which of those is likely to happen first at this stage. There are four tiers of membership, all with the same benefits, so you can choose the level that suits your budget. Patrons also get access to all our bonus content, like our special episode on the Delta Works, uh, which lots of people have um, given uh, very nice reviews to, so thank you very much uh, for those, and uh, we'll keep striving to produce more, more of that kind of content. Yeah, and what is the what is the next episode going to be I on? think we're working on one at the moment about uh, the Lelystad Airport which is a, yeah. a sort of miniature Berlin-Brandenburg-type yeah. catastrophe. <laughs> I was going to say, it might sound a bit boring, but the whole shenanigans and drama behind it is, is highly entertaining. Yeah, and, uh, it's, as intriguing as, uh, it's as intriguing as an airport construction project can be, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. If you haven't sold it now, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, then it'll never take off, like, like all the planes at Lelystad. <laughs> Yeah, all patrons also get an extra vote in the hotly contested OPEF of the Year awards, and Hachtegordel patrons, which is the top tier, get three votes. But why not upgrade mm-hmm. now and beat the Christmas rush? And we also like to give a shout out to new members to say thank you, and uh, we always love to get your comments and your questions as well, so we can tackle those. So if you'd like to become a sponsor, log on to www.patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash DutchNewsNL.
big news coming from the Technological University in Delft. Researchers at that university have developed a special battery based on sodium, which is more sustainable to produce than the commonly used lithium battery. Research leader Marnix Wagemaker says the sodium battery can charge faster and lasts 30 to 40% longer than other batteries and can therefore play an important role in the energy transition. The research results were recently published in the scientific journal Nature Sustainability. Batteries are now made from lithium and cobalt. They are very scarce and expensive and their extraction uh, causes an, uh, enormous environmental and social problems. Sodium, on the other hand, can be easily subtracted from, for example, seawater, hmm. because it's basically in your table salt, right? Yeah. It's a sodium chloride. Yeah. Um, current sodium batteries have a shorter lifespan and can store less energy than other battery types, but the team has created a combination of crystal structures that both charge quickly and store a lot of energy, overcoming the practical drawbacks of the current types of, uh, of sodium batteries. It is expected that it will take some time before the new batteries can be produced on a large scale, but the researchers believe it will be a major contributor in the energy transition. For example, uh, by storing excess solar and wind power. Hmm. So we've got uh, solar power, wind power, and now salt power. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sports news, and uh, we'll start with speed skating, because Irene Schouten... Ah. Um, yeah, dropped the uh, dramatic and unexpected news that she's hanging up her skates at the age of 31. She's the Ernst Kuipers of, of ice skating. <laughs> she is, yeah. Do you think she's got a job in Singapore? <laughs> yeah. or, or with the travel company? Anyway, last <laughs> yeah. week Schouten won three gold medals and a silver at the World Championships in Calgary, including the mass start where she fell over, got up and overtook the entire field again to cross the line mm. in first place. So that was quite amazing. She's also yeah the mass she's start. Like, is, the she's mass also start. the Geert Wilders of of of, of, <laughs> of ice skating. Yeah, you just can't keep her down, can you? Yeah, she's she, she's like the Dick Advocate almost of uh, ice skating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the mass starts the the one um, the speed skating event that's actually quite exciting because they're all on the, the ice at the same time. They quite often collide. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, um, she's also <laughs> a three-time Olympic champion, and she was expected to defend her titles over three thousand meters and five thousand meters in Milan in two years' time. But she said after dedicating herself to the sport. 24 hours a day for 15 years that she wanted to bow out at the top she said I can't be there for my family and friends because I'm always at training camp preparing for a race and I can't see anyone at Christmas because I don't want to catch anything so she can now look forward to having uh, yeah, overcooked uh, beef on, on a regular basis <laughs> And uh, and getting infected by uh, by uh, bacteria <laughs> and viruses from uh, from yeah. your Christmas guests. Yeah, um, especially if, uh, another, she, especially if Thierry Baudet is doing the cooking, she got food poisoning <laughs> yeah. as well. And um, another athlete made headlines uh, on the dry oval uh, at the weekend. Yeah, yeah, that was Famke Boll, who last year set a world record at the National Indoor Athletics Championships in Appledorn, over 400 metres. And uh, this year, a packed crowd turned out, uh, hoping she'd do it again, and she did. Uh, Boll ran 49.24 seconds for the distance, which shaved two hundredths of her old mark. And in second place, Lika Klaver set a personal best of 50.1 seconds, and that makes them the fastest two athletes in the world this year, at 400 metres, which bodes well for the World Championships, which start in Glasgow in two weeks' time. Ball was full of praise for Klaver after the race. She said it's a luxury to be able to race and train together. And going back to uh, to ice skating uh, for a minute, we've lost uh, one of uh, the last connections to the Elfstedentocht. Yeah, Piet Fenema, who was the ice master for the Friesland Marathon race uh, until 2002, has died at the age of 91. And he was responsible mm. for 
getting the uh, last edition of the Elstede Tochter on in 1997. Uh, and if you've only just got here, the Elstede Tochter is a 200km legendary round tour of Friesland that only happens when it freezes really hard for about two weeks, which, um, yeah. thanks to global warming, doesn't really happen anymore. And it could be that, that 1997 race is the last one we ever have. It's only taken place 15 times since 1910, but when it does, the whole country basically stops. Children get the day off school. It's um, yeah, it's wall-to-wall -wall coverage on television, and people in Friesland will go out and line the canals uh, with uh, big flasks of um, hot chocolate and tea and coffee. And whenever, whenever the temperature uh, dips below uh, zero, um, yeah, the Netherlands, the whole country gets uh, gets uh, taken aback by the so-called Elfstedentocht courts. The yep. Elfstedentocht uh, fever, yep. uh, because yeah, everyone expects or hopes that uh, this will finally be a year where the Elfstedentocht can be um, can be raced. Yeah, everyone's gripped by Elfstedentocht fever, and uh, Frisian sports administrators become overnight celebrities, and suddenly they're on television yeah. every night telling you about the state of the ice. You see people going out sweeping the canals, trying to get the snow off. Uh, if you, if you, um, you might know that uh, Frisian is an official language uh, in yes. the Netherlands, and uh, the the language spoken by the Frisians in uh, Friesland, naturally. And I think the most famous sentence from that language is "it geet on," mm. which means um, yeah, it uh, it can go through. Yeah, uh, and uh, that is what the uh, ice uh, ice managers say when uh, when the Afstedentocht can go ahead. Uh, they, uh, it's a famous line if. Uh, of, uh, of the Frisian language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the last time there was a real serious chance they'll stay to talk, I think it was about, was it 2012? I think they got within about sort yeah. of one cold, no, one cold night short, basically. They got, or there's one patch of canals somewhere around here yeah. in it didn't quite freeze hard enough but actually the one that uh, for in 1997 there was some controversy about whether that was really going ahead because uh, Pete Feynman had to sort of literally drag blocks of ice across the <laughs> you know, underneath canal bridges so that people could skate across them and they sort of you see mm. when, you, when you look at the, the the footage of the race you see the points when people literally have to sort of stop and kind of sort of jump across the ice flows that he's put in the canals to uh, so they can keep going so it was kind of touch and go even then and he skated the race himself four times in his lifetime as well, oh, including oh, uh, the most famous, well, possibly one of the most famous um, uh, Elstede Talks, 1963, which was, by all accounts, uh, it was called the Hell of 63. It took place in blizzard conditions. It was uh, minus 18 at midnight. Uh, it did warm up to about minus six, but then got cold. And then, 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 then the wind came in and uh, yeah. skaters talked about being snow blinded. They couldn't see where they were going. You know, there was no visibility at all. And uh, 500 people started the race, but only 126 finished. And uh, Feynman was the ninth person to cross the line. So. Oh. Oh, wow. He knew his Elfstedentocht. talked. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this uh, particular edition of the Elfstedentocht is turned into a uh, awful film. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you have nothing to do, then uh, yeah. uh, you can go ahead and watch yeah. it. Yeah. If you, have to, you see almost as much snow as you do in a, in a miniseries about Quincy <laughs> Promise. <laughs> yes. Um, how much cocaine do you need to actually complete <laughs> the Elfstedentocht? I think a lot. Yeah. It, it um, must help. Yeah, so uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a nice chance for Quincy Promes to uh, return to the <laughs> Netherlands, I think. Um, 
Okay, I am excited for this. There is new cricket news. There is cricket news, yes. Um, mixed results for the Netherlands cricket team this week. They're playing a Tri-Nations series in Nepal as the first stage of their efforts to qualify for the 2027 World Cup. This is even more complicated than the Nations League, so I won't get into it. <laughs> but uh, in their first match, they crashed to a nine-wicket defeat to Nepal. The Dutch were bowled out for 137, with skipper Scott Edwards top-scoring with 33. Nepal needed just 15 overs. It's a 50-over match, but they needed just 15 overs to reach their target. Um, and then the Netherlands recovered on Monday to beat Namibia by seven wickets. Arjen Dutt was the player of the match, uh, the spin bowler. He took six wickets for 34 as the Dutch bowled out Namibia for 123. And in reply, Michael Levitt scored 81 as they cruised to victory in 27 overs. Do you think uh, the Dutch cricket team complains about the elevation of Nepal? I would because, think so. Uh, whenever, yeah. whenever there is a World World <laughs> Cup, then uh, the, the the football players they they keep whining about uh, the humidity and the elevation of uh, of the of the place of the city where they are playing. Yeah. I don't think uh, the cricket players uh, do that. They just uh, uh, they just play and they uh, they they don't complain. Play, yeah. don't complain. Uh, uh, speaking of whining athletes, uh, the Champions League. Um, there were some uh, some football matches uh, in that competition as well. Yeah, that's rumbling on. Uh, Luke de Jong scored a penalty penalty for PSV uh, that even he said was debatable to earn a one-all victory against Borussia <laughs> Dortmund uh, in the first leg of their last 16 tie. Dortmund will be slight favourites to progress in the second leg in three weeks' time, but Peter Boss will have Hustil back from injury. Boss said he was hampered by a lack of attacking substitutes with Noah Lang out and Jorbert Fertessen having left for Union Berlin. Uh, Feyenoord and Ajax uh, are also trying to make progress in the Europa League and Conference League respectively. Um, the latest news there is that Ajax have gone into extra time against the fearsome Norwegian giants Bodo Glimt. Uh, it's currently 3-3 on aggregate uh, as we record on Thursday evening and Feyenoord's matches later on so we'll give you the update on the results of those matches next week. Yeah, we have a, a, a true menagerie of animal stories yep. uh, in store for you this week. Uh, let's start with a very rare species of big-eyed bugs that have been spotted in the Netherlands for the first time in 122 years. Um, and that was only days before it died. Uh, David Sees, a preacher from Harderwijk, noticed a miniature insect with its uh, distinctive bulging eyes while out catching spiders in Kootwijker Sand, that's a June landscape near Appeldoorn. He often goes outside to catch things like beetles and bugs, um, but this time he saw a tiny bug crawling around. Uh, it caught his eye because uh, it had a bigger head than, uh, than usual. And after the preacher submitted uh, photos taken with a macro lens camera to nature observation site waarneming.nl, which is one of the better websites we have in this country, I have to say, um, the uh, yeah, automatic AI uh, confirmed, that, uh, the, uh, confirmed, confirmed that the bug was the Geochorus megacephalus, um, and that's a relative of the common bed bug. Uh, but it was uh, last recorded in the Netherlands in 1902. So yeah, a very rare um, uh, species. And when Cis went back to uh, the site where he left the creature, whose Dutch name is Grootkop uh, Bolooglands, uh, this is a good name for Scrabble, I think. A very good name. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think actually we, we should just stop the contest for word of the year. I think this is word of the year yeah. for me. 
This is a couple of fans. Sis uh, went back to uh, check uh, to to uh, to to see how the puck was doing, and uh, yeah, he uh, he saw that it had already expired in the meantime. Yeah, well, he uh, left C- it in a, he left it in a box with some grit. I yeah. mean, it seems to that. Yeah, I don't know if that was the reason it died, but uh, certainly when he went back, uh, yeah, it was it, it was no more. It was an ex couple of fans. Um, Cis uh, says that he has uh, preserved the insect's body in uh, in a a, a bottle of alcohol in case Naturalis, that's the Natural History Museum in Leiden, is interested. And I'm sure they are because they have so much (laughs) animals on display. Surely they want a Grootkopbol Oogwans as well. Yeah, well, the good news is they won't need to make much space for it because it's only four and a half millimeters long. So about half half as long as a ladybird. So, (laughs) yeah. Uh, and they have a uh, they have a, uh, a Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, called Beatrix. So uh, mm. yeah, maybe they should just uh, uh, throw out that uh, that uh, that skeleton and make room for the groot kopbologwans. <laughs> Give it a place of honor in the uh, in the Naturalis yeah. Museum. <clears throat> they won't need a lot of space for the bug. They will need quite a lot of space for its nameplate, though. It's, uh... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, speaking of uh, large things, uh, Dutch biologist uh, and TV presenter Freek Funk was part of a group of international biologists that discovered a new anaconda species in the northern Amazon region. Um, the snake looks very similar to the other anaconda, but its DNA is apparently very different, Funk said on a uh, Instagram post. The team gave the new snake the Latin name Unectus Akayima, uh, meaning the northern green anaconda. I believe Akayima is uh, uh, the term for anaconda of uh, one of the uh, indigenous la- languages of ah. uh, the Amazons. I thought you were going to say um, it was Portuguese for fake funk or something, or Portuguese for funk. <laughs> 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 Could have been as well, yeah, yeah. Um, until now, only a single species of anaconda was known in the Amazons. The newly discovered species is only found in Venezuela, Suriname, and Guyana. Uh, and uh, they tested 78 samples uh, of DNA, and it differs by 5.5% to that of the normal green anaconda. And uh, I believe um, a human and a, a chimpanzee, for example, uh, differ by 3%, yeah. uh, just to give you a comparison. Uh, the snake can grow about 7 meters, and it weighs 250 kilograms. Um, the animal is f- extremely strong, and Fake can attest to that, because he personally let himself be strangled by the uh, new species of anaconda, <laughs> even though he didn't know uh, it was a new species at the time. So he strangled himself, which was he, which he thought was a normal anaconda. So oh. that uh, doesn't make it turned things out to be a more super sane. strong <laughs> anaconda. Yeah, yeah, it very nearly <laughs> yeah. weighed a lot more than 250 kilograms. If, uh, it would have had a yeah. freak funk inside it yeah <laughs> and uh yeah we have a lot of other uh, uh animal news but yeah we're already uh, approaching the, uh, the one hour mark yeah. uh, but there is a a rat plague in the hague apparently rats the size of small cats um are terrorizing certain parts of the hague uh, your your neighborhood as well gordon or are you rat free i haven't right now? seen any rats that side well, well, there's there's two cats in the back garden i'm pretty sure they are cats mm-hmm. but uh, perhaps i should look a bit more closely <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah, or else just be happy with uh, with the person uh, uh, playing the flute every morning, walking in your uh, walking <laughs> exactly. in the street. Yeah. 
Um, I believe there are also some baby cheetahs in the Beekse Bergen Zoo in Hilvare Beek. There are also three baby elephants at that specific zoo. So definitely something to uh, to check out, especially because school holiday school the school holiday is uh, is finished uh, today, right? So, yes. Uh, um, so, no so these are all things that your your children have missed during the, 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 the <laughs> when that trip to the zoo that you didn't go on because it was too wet. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, what else do we have? Uh, there was also some other animal news which I forgot. Um, something about mosquitoes, right? Uh, yeah, something about Kachima, but apparently they, they did some research into why it's really hard to squash mosquitoes, and uh, it's to do with the way they re- react to the uh, to, 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 to the um, current of air from your hand. Because um, I don't know, yeah. and Newsu did a really uh, yeah bizarre item on it where they, they went into huge de- <laughs> detail about. Uh, best methods for squashing mosquitoes um yeah i have to say i I just kind of put my hand move my hand towards them very slowly so you don't get um you you don't give them a sign to fly away and that seems to work for me (laughs) don't warn them off yeah yeah but news you're doing bizarre items yes uh, i never thought that they would do something (laughs) it's quite out of character isn't it (laughs) Uh, news yeah i'm still i'm still of the opinion that they should change their name into news uh, th- uh, 30 to 45 minutes rather than news hour because yes. they're never an hour long and that's no. because they dropped the sports sections of the of their in their in their in their program i think yeah of course there's, there's a, there's a the separate sports bulletin afterwards yeah we did make it to an hour so that's all we had for you this week uh, this podcast is a production of dutch news which can be found online at dutchnews.nl We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and uh, leave us a rating, or perhaps even consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You'll earn yourself a free shout on the podcast, access to bonus content, and um, uh, more extra votes for the uh, Op of the Year awards. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week. (laughs) 